This episode contains uh, stuff that probably isn't suitable for all viewers. Viewer discretion is advised. We are also now filming episodes of Journey to the Fringe live on Twitch every Sunday starting at 8.30 p.m. Pacific Time Zone. So if you would like to be there to witness the magic, feel free to stop by and say hi. I also added a, uh, a light in front so I can be very bright for when we talk to these beautiful people on Twitch. Oh, it's supposed to be in front? I think if I you, just switched no, to a you, light. You thing. look good for, for what you're trying to do. You can be very visible. <laughs> Mine before, I was very okay. dark, so I'm quite happy with what I'm doing here. In the news, we have freaky Ogopogo sighting in the Okanagan from Castanet. Again, another Castanet. We did Bigfoot print sighting from Castanet. There's a lot going on in the Okanagan. Castanet does a good job of doing very weird right-wing topics. Also yeah. Bigfoot and Ogopogos. Again, if you'll recall from the last uh, last episode, but we did an episode starter that had the Bigfoot print that was found in the Okanagan that was published on Castanet. This time we have an Ogopogo sighting. So it was a Summerland woman saying that it might sound crazy, but she's convinced she saw the legendary Ogopogo this week in Okanagan Lake. Saw Ogopogo in uh, Okanagan? I have never, and I don't know if we've actually ever talked about Ogopogo specifically no, on this podcast. Not at all. I want to give everybody a bit of an idea. So I live in what's called the Okanagan Valley in BC, Canada. The Okanagan has a 120 or so kilometer long or about a 100 mile long lake right down the middle of it. And there is a lot of indigenous groups that were supposed to have been living here. We unfortunately, well, depending on who you ask and who's benefiting from it, there were ab aboriginal groups that lived all the way around this area because it's a beautiful part of the world and it's very easy to mm -hmm. survive. They nice. believe there was a spirit living in the Okanagan Lake. It, in fact, wasn't called Ogopogo. That is a marketing term that came from the European settlers in the 1930s. But really? yeah. It is the spirit of the Okanagan Lake, known now as Ogopogo, that is basically considered to be a lake monster that is serpent-like. If you ever come visit Kelowna, you will see prominently displayed in the downtown core, or when you're coming into town, a depiction of what we believe the Ogopogo to look like. It is just a giant snake. Yeah, like that guy. Yeah. I think Dad did, in fact, have the best idea of what it was, and he did believe it to be a giant sturgeon. Because they can grow up to 20-some feet long. And that's more reason not to go into the lake on my behalf. Yes, Chelsea um, has a fear of <laughs> non-clear waters below her. Or even fish. clear. I don't know which one is actually... Okay, okay, it is just fish. I wouldn't necessarily like a clear... Like, I just wouldn't want... Because what if it's clear and you can clearly see something swimming towards you? I wouldn't like that either. Wait, it's just seeing a giant octopus arm reaching out for you? You wouldn't be at ease? to the fact that you can see it it's not my thing okay. <laughs> anything coming out of anywhere in the water or okay. land for i guess i wouldn't want either. a giant octopus arm grabbing me from the land either no but it's just something about the water where you can't move as freely <laughs> but you anyhow move more freely in any direction <laughs> the sighting she says it was huge and it was black and it was moving pretty fast and it had a wake behind it so i don't know how fast it would have had to been moving or how big it would have had to be to have a wake behind it it so fully depends on the lake um situation if it is a dead calm you don't need to do much to get a giant wake behind you really could i make a wake 
you could very easily make a wake. From that picture, I would be inclined to believe that was a moose. It, it does look actually like a moose that you say that. And then she says, quote, it moved so fast, so maybe she ruled moose out. I knew it wasn't a moose. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> It submerged itself, then re-emerged, pulling a wake behind it, and then submerged itself again and disappeared. And then it says, whatever I saw, it it was definitely aquatic, whether it was a sturgeon or not. It was huge. It was really big. So she actually does cite that it could potentially be a large sturgeon. And then she estimates she was about 300 feet above the lake when she saw it. Then yeah. pulled out her phone. So there is a photo so, of this. And yeah, she didn't take a video. And she is actually pretty far away from the lake at this point. The Okanagan Valley is completely surrounded by mountains. And you can, in fact, on the far side of the valley, you can see there that yeah. the other side of the lake is just mountains. So she is a climbing a mountain at this point, more or less, and is substantially far away. I would say she's too far away to actually indicate what she is seeing. And without taking a video, we can't agree with the idea that she's saying it can't be a moose. And what I'm seeing right now is a moose. Yeah, it's just a little tiny black dot, really. And it's emanating from that little tiny black dot, and there's nothing longer. And that is a pristine lake. Like, you see no waves in that thing. It looks to be a completely windless day. You can even see the mountains in the reflection. You can see a little bit of disturbance in the background there. But that's not even like full waves. See, I wouldn't make a similar distinction if I saw anything in that lake at all. That I would I was definitely like, take pictures I... of that and talk to people. But I do think that even is a very... little bit. If I was like, I can't identify that immediately, I would jump to Ogopogo. That's I think fair. everybody who knows me knows that. That's fair. Yeah, it is but fair. that's why we talk about these things. Okay. Well, let's move on. Cue the okay. uh, music here. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on our journey to the fringe. Welcome to Journey to the Fringe, the one and only fringe topic podcast, which may or may not be a lie. I am Taylor. I am here with my sister, Chelsea. And today we are continuing on with our dive into the occult which has really, I'm just going to speak for both of us, been one hell of a pain. It's and not clear cut by any means. It is, is not clear cut where you should be going. And there are so many different correct answers on the internet as to what actually has happened that it just, it becomes a headache actually figuring out what's actually happened. Chelsea has just finished off HPB. I colloquially know as Blavatsky. And we are going to be moving into a character who you probably don't know, but I you, you have he's it. probably more well known than Elena Blavatsky. H-E-B. He is definitely more well known than Blavatsky, but mm. you probably just kind of know him in the background of many things. And the character we are looking at today is a man by the name of Alistair Crowley. You may know him as Alistair Crowley, and I actually find it quite surprising that a man who lived into the radio age and into the TV age has some fight over how his name is actually pronounced. There is a fight online about how to pronounce his name, Crowley or Crowley. From what I can tell, and this is from his religious group, is that Crowley did in fact write poems 
that he rhymed his own name in. He rhymed his own name with Holy, which implies Crowley. that his last name is pronounced Crowley. Are there recordings of him saying his name? I could not find anything about him actually talking. Huh. Alistair Crowley, often considered to be the beast or the wickedest man to ever live. Those nicknames do come from biased sources. His mother. Oh, he's they a good might son. not be correct. There are definitely people who believe that he is misrepresented in culture and history. I'm going to try to give the fairest answer to everything that did happen in his life that I can. Can't guarantee it's all going to be the actual answer, especially when a lot of it comes from his own diary writings or people who got really pissed off at him and wrote about him. But <laughs> we're going to try to give the best go of this we can. And really explain why we actually feel it's necessary to talk about Aleister Crowley. Because he is still, unfortunately, a very important part of the occult, the fringe topics that you know us and love us for. I've been trying to feel good about what we're about to talk about for a while. And just for a little bit, I did when I listened to some podcasts about his religion. And then I remembered, oh, right, they probably have a slanted view. And I continued reading about him. And it turns out they, in fact, do have a very slanted view of this man. Chelsea, so are you what... going to slant the view on this podcast? I'm going to try to keep it as matter of fact as possible. I know you always do. Yeah, we're going to see what happens because, God, it was I could only withstand about like two hours of reading about this guy a day because like we're going to get into it. I really wanted to keep it. Okay, I don't know. I don't like I know a general sense of him, but I don't know. If it's that dark to what you're alluding to. Okay. What do you know about Aleister Crowley? I know something about... I know he wasn't, like, good, good. I know that he saw that he had that being that he saw. Yep. Which actually doesn't come up a heck of a lot in this episode. Really? Yeah. So he saw that being with the triangle face. You know, I know he did some other things, and I think I was telling you about last weekend. Did he give, he gave the peace sign to, what's his face? Uh, Winston, Winston Churchill. Churchill? Yeah. Wait, that's um, a true thing, right? Or did I make that up? No, it is purported to have happened by some people. Yeah, yeah I've heard and that. And that is how I will leave that statement for now. Okay. Because it's not necessarily true, but we don't know for sure. Because a lot of what we know about Aleister Crowley is from what he's written, because he's a very prolific writer. Like greater than life, right? And I found that it was the same. And I found well, that with each. I don't necessarily believe greater than life. I believe this to be a spoiled rich kid who just never really learned to grow out of his angsty teen years. Sorry to paint it that way because I do want to keep it as neutral as possible, but that is really how I see Aleister Crowley. Yeah. After reading so much about him and seeing both sides of it, I really do believe he just never really learned how to leave that angsty teen years, and it, it has a lot to do with how freaking rich he was. Okay. Anyhow, what I know is very minimal. So okay. Let's, let's, I'm going to learn more, obviously, so yes. let's do it. Yes, let's do that. Aleister Crowley was actually born Edward Alexander Crowley, and he was born to a mother and father by the name of Emily Bertha Bishop and Edward Crowley in the year 1875. <laughs> Edward was an engineer by trade, but actually happened to be incredibly wealthy because he owned shares in a family distillery. So he actually didn't work 
the entire time that Alistair Crowley knew him and was a stay-at-home dad, more or less. He used the term retired, but stay-at-home dad. Emma Bertha Bishop was born in 1948. Edward Crowley, born in 1829. So by the time Alistair was born, his dad was 36, and his mom was in her late 20s. This is actually a fairly old age for parents at this point in time. Imagine at that point. Now, not interesting for this time, but just something to keep a point of is... Both Edward Crowley and Emily Bertha Bishop were devout Plymouth Brethren members. And the Plymouth Brethren are a very, um, it's hard to say extreme, but they are an evangelical portion of the Christian sect that represent Britain. Okay. Edward Alexander Crowley was born to his parents in Warwickshire on October 12th, 1875. He was born under the religion of the Plymouth Brethren, specifically the Exclusive Brethren, which is they don't allow outsiders into this religion. Interesting way to do it. It's a hard couple of first years for Alistair, who, sorry, I'm going to call him Alistair from here on, just because eventually he does change his name, Edward Alexander Crowley. And because his dad's name is Edward, it's easier just to call him Alistair at this point. Eh. He was never allowed to play with toys. So some people get all the toys they want in the world. Some people just get a shoebox of toys. Some get no toys, and that's Alistair. And in fact, he's not even allowed books. The only book he's allowed to read his entire childhood is the Bible. So the only thing keeping him company for the first eight years of his life is his parents and the Bible. Oh, boy, no. (laughs) Yeah. Edward Crowley, his dad, would read them a chapter of the Bible every morning at eight just so that they all were keeping track of what's happening in the bible these days because you know it changes every now and then exactly that's why i do it so it's not exactly a normal childhood right here at a certain point they start kind of getting alistair more involved with the bible they start asking him to find every time you see the word but in the bible so that he is very fluent in what's going on And a child of sage, he actually can read quite well. And sorry, just so that we're all on the same page, a lot of the autobiography of Aleister Crowley is written by Aleister Crowley. And he is Mm -hmm. very narcissistic. I'm going to throw that out right now. So some of the things that I'm going to say are likely to be an exaggeration on his part about how great he was at things. That's what you find with people who are like this that are leading, like cultish leaders. Exactly. While he was at home, his father also taught him Latin because they are a well-to-do family in Britain. And that is what you do. Mm -hmm. By the time he reaches the age of eight, he gets sent off to boarding school. In fact, to a boarding school for the Plymouth Brethren. Now, when he actually goes off to boarding school, he does not do well, surprisingly, for an eight-year-old who has never talked to another person other than his parents and who's only played with a thing known as the Bible. He gets picked on relentlessly. He himself describes his childhood phase as him having the chest that of a woman. So he was a little fatty. Is that what that means? I think. (laughs) He went to school and he did not fit in well. And he, I at least believe that this is kind of where he learned that he was into BDSM. Okay. Wait, what? Because, yeah, just right off the bat, this is where it kind of starts. That he learns that he kind of likes being punished and whipped. Okay. I actually wasn't expecting that. Yeah, it's going to keep happening. 
So he was sent to H.T. Habersham's Evangelical Christian Boarding School in Hastings and then to Eber Preparatory School in Cambridge run by the Reverend Henry D'Arcy Chapney, whom Crowley considered a sadist. And this is that whole thing that this guy would say that God most importantly watches you when the lights are off. And he really took pleasure in whipping the children that would misbehave. And he, this all comes from Crowley's own writings. He fully considered this guy a sadist who his pleasures were not being met at home. Hmm. I mean, it's like the early 1900s at this. No, it'd still be. It, it is 1887 or yeah. so that we're talking about. And oh. this does come to form a lot of what he's talking about. We will get into it after this next part. So Curly takes these first three years not well. And his father, who is old for uh, being a father of a young child, hmm. dies of tongue cancer in 1887. At this point, Alistair Crowley is 11 years old. Ugh. And he actually takes it quite hard. But he actually never considers the fact that he actually loved his father. He just kind of states that he accepted his role as the head of the household. And he just kind of accepts that that power was above him and says that I liked my father. I didn't love my father. And he specifically says I never loved my father. Okay. After his father dies, he does many things. I'm going to start it with this part. He inherits one third of his father's estate, which ends up being in today's dollars, several million dollars oh. as an 11 year old. Oh. He becomes unruly and he enters what I deemed no one else did, but I'm going to deem it his chronic masturbation and cat murdering phase. Oh, no, he's a serial yeah. killer. <laughs> you would think he is. It's all but, the money. Um, as far as I could tell, it never happened. So he himself has written that he became a chronic masturbator at 11 and that he was molested many a time throughout the preparatory schools and that he murdered a cat in these days. And not just in the normal way of murdering a cat. In fact, he found that people were saying cats have nine lives. So he took that to mean that if you wanted to kill a cat, you have to kill it at least nine times. So he stole a cat. I'm going to keep it as brief as possible. He murdered it in 10 different ways just to make sure it didn't survive. Oh. They are incredibly disturbing and are he, like, documents very, how many very blatant outcries for help. He did not do well at school at this point. He jumped around from private school to private school, became skeptical of the Bible at this point. He okay, says... Hold on. Is he paying for his own private schools at this point? No, his mother is, because she has two-thirds of the wealth. It's curious. So he was bumping around from private school to private school, and at this point, he says that he became very skeptical of the Bible, and he said there are very many inconsistencies within the Bible, and whenever he would ask questions about it to his teachers, they would beat him. At this point, he became sympathetic to the villains in the Bible, and he really said, like, if this is how Christians treat their enemies, I don't actually think you should consider the enemies bad. Probably not what he needed when he was murdering cats. Yes. He started smoking at this age as well. And sorry, this is about 11 to 16. I don't have numbers pinned down. He started smoking, using drugs, buying prostitutes, and likely contracted syphilis at this point. How old is he? Somewhere between 11 and 16. Okay. At this point, when he's having so much trouble, he's went to live with a tutor in Eastbourne, where the tutor got him involved in poetry and got him very involved in mountain climbing as like hobbies to kind of distract him from all this stuff that's going on mm -hmm. outside of it. He that's seems to do right well way. for the end of his, yeah, his primary education. 
and he does well enough to be able to attend Cambridge University. 1895, he starts at Cambridge University and changes his name to Aleister Crowley. No more confusion about which Edward we're talking about because we're now talking about just Aleister Crowley. I wasn't confused because one of them died. Yes. Where does Aleister come from? I don't know for sure. I could look that up, but God, there were too many avenues to go okay. down and Aleister was just not one I felt like I needed to go down. That's a fair statement though. Okay. He studied English and became the president of the chess club. There are many stories about how great he was at chess, but he wrote them all. So I don't know how good he was at chess. I'm also very good at chess. Yes, I know that. Or you hmm. told me just now. Exactly. <laughs> While he was studying at Cambridge, he joined a group for mountain climbing and he started going to the Alps every year to climb mountains. Okay, so he's keeping on mountain climbing. This is good and healthy. Yes. Like this journey for him. Yes. So he's getting off the track and he's strictly a mountain climber. And that yeah. ends the story of Alistair Crowley, the great and prolific mountain climber. <laughs> like that one yeah so in 1896 he goes on a vacation to stockholm where he has what he considers his first mystical experience which is incidentally tied into what he considers his first bisexual experience okay they happen about the same time also sleeping with men is illegal at the time punishable by death he's from the united kingdom yes and he's in sweden at the time it is punishable by death at the time probably everywhere I don't know. I'm just yeah, getting. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. He talks about this being his first mystical experience. It's more or less a astral projection that he experiences, but also it happens to coincide with his first bisexual experience, which kind of comes up with what he believes religion to be coming kind of okay. going on. Wow, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah. Again, just then. This whole time, all of his moving around and vacations are funded by himself and all of his money that he got from his dad. Yeah, that's what I'd be doing. After his Stockholm adventure, he decides to kind of become a globetrotter because mm -hmm. in October of 1897, he had a brief illness which triggered his considerations of mortality and the futility of the human endeavor. Hmm. And Crowley abandoned all thoughts of a diplomatic career in favor of pursuing a interest of the occult. And I should have mentioned before this, he was very interested in learning Russian and becoming an ambassador to Russia. Okay. What was he going to Cambridge for? He was studying English. He ends up being a poet out of it. In March of 1898, he obtained A.E. Waits' The Book of Black Magic and of Pacts. And then Carl von Eckertshausen, the cloud upon the sanctuary, furthering his occult interests. So he really started to get involved in a lot of these occult things. Somewhere between 1898 and 1899, he joins what is known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. He has started kind of down this path of the occult. And the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn is the most mainstream way you could join any type of magic group at this time. Now, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on. I'm pretty sure that I looked into them a little tiny bit with HPV. Yeah, because she would have been around at the time they were first coming out. The most famous members of this order are Bram Stoker and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, famous for the literary characters of Dracula and uh, Sherlock Holmes, respectively. Alistair was brought in to the group in 1898. The ceremony took place in the Golden Dawn's Isis Urania Temple held at London's Marks Mason's Hall, where Crowley took the magical model and name Freiter Perdurabo, which he interpreted as I shall endure to the end. 
the hermetic order of the golden dawn did have strict rules about how their magic which was mostly ritual magic and discerned from the practices of solomon and john d in his interpretation of the enochian language in that it had to be taught over time through its order and could not be paid for by any of the members or outside figures however Crowley did find a way around this rule by having one of the members, Alan Bennett, come live with him in his luxury condo in London from 1967 until 1969 without paying rent, asking only in return that he teach him the inner workings of the ritual magic. When it came time for Crowley to progress to the Second Order, many members did not enjoy his company and he was actually quite an unpopular member of the group. He was refused or this order, and instead of pursuing it through the London School, he instead went over to the Paris Order and was initiated into the Adeptus Minor Grade. This schism, however, did cause a fallout with Aleister Crowley and the at least British side of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And at this point, really, the relationship gets severed. I'm going to keep it as simple as that. Like, there is a big fight between him and the London Hermetic Order, and he does join up with the French Order. But more or less, this is the point where he kind of falls out with both of them, with the French taking him in, but eventually they both fall out. And I think that's the easiest way to explain that. And in, in 1900, he decides to just kind of, like, leave for a while and just do a bit of a travel. So at this point, he's 25, and he goes to Mexico. Didn't where... want to travel clear around the globe like uh, HPB. Oh, he definitely travels around the globe. But it's not specifically dated. Yeah. At this point, he travels to Mexico, and he uh, really starts to take into heart the incantations that he was taught in the Hermetic Order and tries to teach himself John Dee's Enochian magic. I read a couple things where he was trying to make himself invisible in his times in Mexico. And also, I should say, he's taking a lot of drugs this entire time. It's just not referenced, but he's taking so many drugs. So I'm going to go ahead and say he did make himself invisible. Yes, at least to somebody's eye. John D, you were just saying, is something to do with yes. Queen Victoria. Yes, he was the right hand to Queen Victoria. Interesting, and he was doing the cabal magic. Cabal magic, and he believed that he discovered the language of the angels, which he called Enochian. Okay. Which references itself to the Book of Enoch, which is that really weird book that's not actually in the Bible. Now I'm wondering about, yes, and I've heard of, makes me wonder about Queen Victoria. Yeah, that's definitely a fair thought. And he's also the one who coined the term the British Empire. Alistair Crowe, oh, John Dee. John Dee, yes. Okay. He is one that I did want to do his own episode on, but he is harder to do. I was just going to say, sounds like we may need to do an episode on John Dee. I would fully say we need to do an episode on John Dee. It's going to be a while, though, because I don't want to touch occult for a while. Yeah, it takes a long time. Okay, yeah. So he's doing this whole thing where he's just living. And sorry, at this point, when he moves to Mexico, every house he lives in at this point forward needs to have a temple in it because he's a really freaking weird guy and he needs a temple to pray at to be able to perform his ceremonies at well that's just something you need in the house yeah eventually he leaves mexico for hawaii he's on a cruise ship he has an affair on the boat to hawaii with a married woman by the name of alice and from it he (laughs) writes the book of poems by the name of alice and adultery i hope alice's husband doesn't read that i have no idea and we never will unfortunately Okay, I guess it wasn't in the book. 
It wasn't in the book. And also, that's not his first published novel. He did publish one before this, and it was called White Stains. Ew. Yeah. Nobody in the UK would publish it. He had to publish it in Denmark, where at least the people who were publishing it didn't know what it said. It was widely critiqued as too graphic for English. Oh. And yes, you can probably picture what he meant by White Stains. (laughs) From Hawaii, he ends up going to Hong Kong, then Ceylon, from here, he met a friend by the name of Ellen Bennett, who was studying Shaivism, which is one of the oldest religions in the world, actually. It's the reverence of Shiva in uh, Hindu. And sorry, Ceylon is in India. From there, he goes to Kandy, where Ellen decides to study Buddhism. And Crowley tours India and practices Raha Yoga and says he attains the state of Dhyana. Mm. And at this point, when we're talking about yoga, it does in fact mean something different than just the stretching. It is a spiritual group. It's almost like saying that you achieve the state of Buddha in Buddhism. Yoga? When he says, yeah, no, yoga is in that way, kind of like a religion itself, the Raha Yoga. Mm. And when he says he achieved the state of Dhyana, it's basically like saying that you achieve the state of Buddha in Buddhism. Mm, Okay. So it's very much so a self-proclaimed thing and also very hard to quantify. While he's doing this, he contracts malaria and he meets some friends who are also mountaineers and they decide to climb a mountain called K2. Now, K2 is widely considered to be one of the hardest mountains in the world to climb. On their hike over to K2, he has malaria, he contracts influenza, And while he's climbing the mountain, he comes down with snow blindness. (laughs) And a couple of things that are actually very interesting about this. So I mentioned that he contracted syphilis in his teenage years. Well, syphilis is actually killed by malaria. What? Yeah. And it was actually one of the considered treatments for a long time. This actually is a somewhat good thing for him in a very weird way. uh, Syphilis and malaria are both horrible things. Only one of those is treatable, but malaria is not as bad as syphilis if you let it go long term. And snow blindness, I just learned about this. Snow blindness is when you get a sunburn on your retina because they can get sunburns and it's so much light that you can no longer see because they're sunburnt from the snow. Oh, God. But with all that in mind, they didn't climb K2, but they reached a point of 20,000 feet. And this is in 1903. This record held for over 30 years. Is oh, the highest really? point to ever reached on K2. I was going to say, yes. that's pretty high, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So he actually was a prolific mountain climber. Right, he mountain climbs. In a very Forgot about world. that with all the yeah. talk of malaria and syphilis and yeah. blindness. So after that, he decided to move to Paris, where he became a fixture of the Parisian art scene, where he met a man by the name of Gerald Kelly and became the inspiration for the character Oliver Haddo in the novel The Magician in 1908. He learned that Gerald Kelly's sister, Rose Kelly, was to be married off to another rich man that she did not care for. To avoid this marrying off, Alistair Crowley decided to marry her. Now, it doesn't just seem to be a try to piss everybody off for the sake of pissing everybody off. And they did appear to actually quite like each other. He wrote her many poems and they did a honeymoon in Egypt. This honeymoon happened in 1904. This is where it gets a little bit strange and where his occult really kind of starts. After the honeymoon. During the honeymoon. I would find this all very strange so yes. far, but continue. So first off, yes, they get they decide to honeymoon in Egypt for, you know, uh, Alistair Crowley loves the occult. It seems like a great place to go. 
Once they get there, they claim to be a prince and princess. They rented an apartment and Alistair promptly set up a temple room and began invoking Egyptian deities while studying Islamic mysticism and Arabic. Hold on, I just realized you could do that. I'm you can just claim it, yes. That, yeah, I'm going to start doing that. I didn't even think that I couldn't not do that until this time. And sorry, this just, I do need to read it word from word from Wikipedia because it is so dancing what's going on. Okay. According to Crowley's later account, Rose regularly became delirious and informed him they are waiting for you. On 18th of March, she explained that they were the god Horus, and on the 20th of March proclaimed that the equinox of the gods has come. She led him to a nearby museum, where she showed him a 7th century BCE mortuary, Stella, known as the Stella of Anka FN's Kansu. Crowley thought it important that the exhibit's number was 666, the beast, which is in fact what his mother called him his entire childhood. According to Crowley's later statements, on April 8th, he heard a disembodied voice that claimed to be that of Iwas, the messenger of Horus, or Horparakrat. Crowley said that he wrote down everything the voice told him over the course of the next three days and titled it Libra al Veligis, or The Book of the Law. The book proclaimed that humanity was entering a new aeon and that Crowley would serve as its prophet. It stated that a supreme moral law was to be introduced in this aeon. And this is the absolute basis of his religion, which is known as Thelema. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So what's going on with him? Is he, is she delirious? Are they doing a lot of drugs? They both are. They're both doing a lot of drugs. She's actually an alcoholic. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. He's doing a lot of drugs. And Hmm. he says that he is contacted by the spirit and that she channeled Horus. And the whole thing is, is he took her to the museum. And this is fully from these two people, no one else, because there's no intervening groups. And this is the only people that have said this has happened. He took her to the museum and said, which of these gods is actually contacting you? And she walked around and eventually pointed at Horus, and she would not have known what he had actually looked like. So he fully took that as like, oh shit, she actually is talking to Horus. Yeah. From there, in his temple, he would start contacting people saying, I'm ready to accept. And he was contacted by the messenger of Horus, who was Iwas. And from that, he channeled Iwas to write the Book of the Law. Okay. And the Book of the Law's main statement is, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. I don't know what that means. Do what you want. That's okay. the law. Okay, I, I like that. Use we that will talk a little bit well. about this, but that's way later on. This book and philosophy that is espoused became cornerstone of Crowley's religion, Thelema. And that is, if you know Aleister Crowley, this is probably something you know him for, is his religion, Thelema. Uh, At this point, he didn't know what to do with the book. He was apparently told that he's supposed to translate it into all languages of the world and usher it in as the one religion of the world, but he decided not to and just kind of sent it to a friend who's occult. Yeah. Thelema is a word taken from the Greek word for will. It laid out what he considered the key principles of life, and that's the pursuit of each individual's will, unconstrained by popular opinion, law, or unconventional ethics. What we've learned so far about Aleister Crowley, it makes a lot of sense that he wouldn't want to be constrained by ethics. Oh. This occurred in 1904. In 1905, Rose gives birth to the first child of Aleister Crowley. And since you're listening right now, Chelsea, do you want to guess at the child's name? Edward? Ooh, close. 
Nuit ma athathur hakate safo Jezebel Lilith. Damn it, I was so close. Isn't that Elon Musk kid's name? Yes, very close, in fact. And Lilith for short. Yeah, that's what it would be for short. Yeah. For sure. At this point, Alistair kind of fucks off. He finds some friends and he says, you know what I should do? Climb another mountain. He gets a group together. I can't remember which mountain this is because, uh, sorry, it's Kanchenjunga. The people that he's bringing up the mountain don't agree with him on what he's doing and they get in a big fight. They leave and many of them die. And Alistair Crowley feels no pity for them at all. He just says, like, yeah, they didn't believe me, so they died. That's just kind of what happens. I don't care if any of them survive. Oh, well, not that I didn't know this to begin with, but he's a sociopath. Yes. I mean, we could have oh, guessed he that. Very he clearly killing is. cats nine times. But From there, and you know what I completely missed is he had a... We'll talk about this at the end because I want to talk about it, but um, not right now. Okay. From there, Rose, Lilith, and Alistair decide to do a trip around China because, you know, that's just kind of what you do. Where Alistair kind of just bums around with them, smoking opium the entire time. And nice. Rose is drunk for most of it. And once they're done it, Lilith says she's going to go home. And Lilith Alistair, is the baby? Lilith and Rose say they're going to go okay. home i should have said that that way i will in fact <laughs> rose says that i'm going to take lilith home to the uk there we go and alistair decides to go over to singapore and talk to opium right uh there's still opium there yes I'm opium is china they both return home eventually lilith and rose before alistair alistair gets back to the uk and learns that lilith had died due to typhoid oh, no. on the way back Likely, cared, we're going to get to that, likely okay. set on by the fact that uh, bottles were not correctly cleaned or boiled before use the second time. He does take it very hard. I could not find it on many sites because it is contentious. But at this point, Alistair becomes an absolute ass. And I, I think ass might be downplaying it. He decides that he's going to punish rose for her shortcomings as a wife he starts having sex with people in front of her oh both both men and women to show her that she's done something wrong if she decided to look away at any point she would be hung up in the closet and yeah two years later rose gives birth to their second daughter and her name is lola zaza Hmm. which is coincidentally the name of one of alistair's mistresses what there's yeah. just two people with that name. Yeah, there's, well, her nickname was Lola Zaza. And that's the mistress who Alistair was sleeping with at the time. He decides to name Rose's daughter Lola Zaza. So that's, um, that's kind of a thing. Well, to Alistair Crowley. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, this is 1907. Alistair's reaching, he's 32 now, 34 here in 1909. He starts to use hashish for mysticism and contacts Iwas again to write two more books. Starts to run out of money and is hired by George Montague Bennett, the Earl of Runs out of money? Yeah, he's starting to run out of money at this point. Oh, okay. Because he's been traveling a lot. For that day and age, though, he had what? He inherited seven million when he was 11 years old? Um, The equivalent of seven million. Okay. 
I mean, that's and, sorry, a lot of money. I, I haven't quite talked about what he's been doing. He bought an apartment in downtown London. He bought a a compound on on the beach of Loch Ness, and he's been traveling everywhere. Okay. So he is eventually running out of money, and he likes to do a lot of drugs, too. Those aren't cheap at this point. True. Okay. 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 That makes total sense now. Okay. So at this point, he starts to run out of money and is hired by a man by the name of George Montagu Bennett, the Earl of Tankerville, to help protect him from witchcraft. He recognized that Mr. Bennett's paranoia was based on his cocaine addiction and Crowley took him on a holiday to France and Morocco to recuperate. In 1907, he also began taking in paying students whom he instructed in the occult and magical practice. Following a mountaintop sex magic ritual, Crowley also performed an evocation to the demon Torazon involving blood sacrifice and considered the results to be a watershed in his magical career. Oh, Returning to London in January of 1910, Crowley found that Mathers was suing him for publishing Golden Dawn's secrets in the Equinox. The court found in favor of Crowley. The case was widely reported in the press, with Crowley gaining much wider fame within the UK, and Crowley enjoyed this and played up the sensationalist stereotypes of being a Satanist and an advocate of human sacrifice, despite, so far as we can tell, being neither. This allowed him to draw more gatherers, and around this time as well, the relationship that Curly had with Rose had diminished, and in November of 1909, he divorced her on the grounds of his own adultery. Lola was entrusted to Rose's care. However, in uh, September of 1911, Rose was institutionalized, aka moved to a sanitarium, and Lola was entrusted under the tutelage and uh, guardianship of Rose's brother. Now, Alistair does meet Lola again when she is 14. And this is a direct quote that Alistair Crowley wrote down. Lola Zaza is unmanageable. She despises everybody, thinks she is a genius, is stupid, inaccurate, plain, ill-tippered, etc., etc., Uses, etc. Yes, he wrote that okay. down. Okay. That's just to kind of give you an idea of what kind of guy this is. I've gotten a very good idea of Alistair so far. Yeah. And sorry, when he returned from this ritual that he did up on that mountain, he decides to do something called the Rite of Eleusis, which he organized in London 1910, where participants took peyote and danced to bongos and listened to Crowley declaiming his magical poetry. And this is considered the first hallucinogenic rave of the modern age. I was just going to say, there's a lot of cults that use drugs like this to like mind wash people. Yeah, he's really the first one to kind of do that. Well, I would. Because like this is 1910 and he's using peyote. Yeah, I mean, peyote goes way back to be used by like, that's the word that I'm looking for, like First Nations types. Oh, yeah. Like it goes way far in, back. In south, southern U.S. downwards. Yeah. Like but it's really to be in used like, in, in a shamans. way like this, this has to have been one of the first. He, he like, literally is one of the first outside of South America to use peyote as a spiritual drug. Yeah, it's not just spiritual, but he's really yeah. like using it in order to gain power from it. Yeah. 
After this, in 1912, he wrote a book called The Book of the Lies. And he's sued by a man by the name of Theodore Roos because there's so many similarities in his own religion, which is called Ordo Templi Orientis. Alistair decides to talk to him and they become friends and he drops the charges. And Crowley is put in charge of the OTO. And so I'm going to call Ordo Templi Orientis if we bring it up again, OTO, just because it's easier. So he's put in charge of that church, the OTO in Britain. And this seems to be where he really gets the idea of sex magic. It's How definitely didn't I know something, all of this about Alistair Crowley? It's definitely something he's been talking about the entire time, but he really puts into words the idea of sex magic. And this is magic with a K at the end, which is very important to him because he's a special little child that needs to be different than everybody else. But also he needs to separate it from stage magic. Okay. So this isn't isn't angel magic. This is magic with a K. Mm. And in fact, you're going to find that with whenever Alistair Crowley's talking about anything, he has to spell it slightly differently, which is 100% a signal that you're in a cult, is that the words are slightly different or you need to use these special words within. Or a Kardashian because it's magic with a K. Yes. Yeah. That's he really likes the idea of sex magic. And this is where he really starts to involve it in the idea of Thelema to the point where he required people trying to reach the 11th degree of OTO to undertake an anal sex ceremony. How many joiners did he have on this? I don't know about the OTO. It couldn't have been the OTO high. Is a thing. Yeah. And it's going to come up again. From 1914 to 1919, it's uh, I considered it his U.S. reg times. So he sold his home in on Loch Ness for financial reasons and moved to New York and began writing for, do you want to take a guess? 1919, mm. who's he writing for in the U.S.? I feel like if you're asking me this question, you're assuming I know. 1919, U.S. A newspaper? Vanity Fair. Oh, well, I wouldn't have known that. So he starts writing for Vanity Fair in the U.S., yeah. Just is, is he spelling everything right or is he not? How do he get hired? I don't know. Everything's I don't even know what he's off. writing about. That there's a lot to learn about this guy, and I did not decide to go down that route. <laughs> okay. While this is going on, he continues to experiment with sex magic through the use of masturbation, female prostitutes, and male clients of a Turkish bathhouse. In All the of these encounters States? were documented in his diaries. Of course. In the U.S., yes, in New York. Turkish oh. bathhouses there? Oh, I guess so. It's yeah. Weird. This gets to be a little bit of a weird part. So we're getting to the start of World War One. Oh. Yes, we haven't hit the weird part. <laughs> so he professes to be of Irish ancestry and a supporter of Irish independence from Great Britain. And Crowley began to espouse support for Germany in their war against Britain. He became involved in New York's pro-German movement. And in January of 1915, German spy George Sylvester Vierick employed him as a writer for his propagandist paper, The Fatherland, which was dedicated to keeping the U.S. neutral in the conflict. In later years, detractors announced Crowley as a traitor to Britain for this action. In reality, Crowley was a double agent working for the British intelligence service to infiltrate and undermine Germany's operations in New York. Wait, what? Yep. Many of his articles in the Fatherland were hyperbolic, for instance, comparing Wilhelm II to Jesus Christ. And in July of 1915, he orchestrated a publicity stunt reported on by the New York Times in which he declared independence for Ireland in front of the Statue of Liberty. The real intention was to make 
German lobby appear ridiculous in the eyes of the American public. It has been argued that he encouraged the German Navy to destroy the Lusitania, informing them that it would ensure the U.S. stayed out of the war. Well, in reality, hoping that it would bring the U.S. into the war on Britain's side. And I don't know if you know this, there was a cruise liner that was coming from the U.S. called Lusitania that the Germans sunk off the coast of New York, which brought the U.S. into World War One. I. I don't think I did know that. So that's the entire reason why the U.S. joined the war. And importantly, it was also carrying cargo to the Allies as the UK would see it. And There's that is why the Germans with the US. It. There's yeah. always something like that with the U.S. that brings yeah. them into a war. Yeah, so that's his spy days, which just kind of comes out of <laughs> okay, nowhere. That's pretty crazy that that was just in there like that, that he was a spy. Yeah, a double spy. Like why, wh who, who would be like... We need him as a spy. Yep. And his sex magic well, seems sex like magic a reliable spy. Maybe they liked Okay. That? I'm sorry. I just need to get these next two sentences out there. Okay. Put them out there. Because I really like how they use the term sex magic. Okay. Okay. Crowley entered into a relationship with Jean-Robert Foster, with whom he toured the West Coast. In Vancouver headquarters of the North American OTO, he met Charles Stanfeld, Jones, and Wilfred Talbot Smith to discuss the propagation of Thelema on the continent. In Detroit, he experimented with peyote at Park Davis, then visited Seattle, San Francisco, Santa Cruz, Los Angeles, San Diego, Tijuana, and the Grand Canyon before continuing on to New York. And this is the part I love. There he befriended Ananda Kumaraswamy and his wife Alice Richardson, Crowley and Richardson performed sex magic in April 1916, following which she became pregnant and then miscarried. Oh. I just don't think you need to necessarily say they perform sex magic. <laughs> I just realized what that, what it they're It just seems a little there. extra. <laughs> it does. But I feel like that's just on point for this guy. Yeah. That's Fair. probably exactly as it appeared in his memoirs. Oh, God, that's at least five times cheaper than what he would have put. Later that year, he took a magical re retirement to a cabin, Lake Pasquani, owned by Evangeline Adams. There, he made heavy use of drugs and undertook a ritual, after which he proclaimed himself Master Therian. He also wrote several short stories based on J.G. Fraser's The Golden Bow and a work of literary criticism, The Gospel According to Bernard Shaw. In 1918, Crowley went on a magical retreat in the wilderness of Esopus Island in the Hudson River. Here he began a translation of the Tao Te Ching, painted Thelemic slogans on the riverside cliffs, and he later claimed experienced past-life memories of being Geshuan, Pope Alexander VI, Alessandro Cagliostro, and Eliphas Levy. Back in New York City, he moved to Greenwich Village, where he took Leah Hersig as his lover and next Scarlet Woman. In 1920, he returns to the UK, gets labeled a traitor to the ground for his work in World War I, and gets diagnosed with asthma and prescribed heroin as a uh, treatment. He becomes heavily addicted to heroin at this point. Well, yeah. He moves to or Paris with that. his magic sex friend, Leah Hersig, and joined in a menage a trois with Ninette Chumway and her daughter. He takes these uh, individual and creates the Abbey of Thelema, 
in Sicily based on a scribing that he took from the I Ching. While they were in Sicily for this, they would wear robes, perform rituals to the sun god Ra at set times during the day, also occasionally performing the Gnostic Mass, which he had written. And Gnosticism being its own right in itself, it's the idea of unknown knowledge, which I think we could do an episode on later on, but it's not necessary for this. It's just rituals that he came up with and he called the Gnostic Mass. Okay. The rest of the day, they were left to follow their own interests. This is hard to read he offered a libertine education for the children allowing them to play all day and witness acts of sex magic what yeah right from the wikipedia page uh i guess that that strongly speaks to his upbringing yeah he occasionally traveled to palermo to visit rent boys and buy supplies including drugs for his heroin addiction and cocaine began to erode his nasal cavity at this point There was no cleaning really happening at the Abbot. Wild dogs and cats wandered throughout the buildings, which soon became unsanitary. Nunette gave birth to a daughter at this point in 1920, Astarte Lulu Panthea, soon afterwards. But new followers continued to arrive to the Abbey to be taught by Crowley. Among them was film star Jane Wolfe, who arrived in July 1920, where she was initiated into the Abbot of the Thelema and became Crowley's secretary. Another was Cecil Frederick Russell, who often argued with Crowley, disliking the same-sex sexual magic that he was required to perform and left after a year. I don't get how he's getting followers. I honestly couldn't tell you. I think he's a very charismatic individual. Oh, it doesn't explain how people are no. following him at this point. In I February of 1922, Crowley returned to Paris for a retreat and an unsuccessful attempt to kick his heroin addiction. He then went to London in search of money, where he published articles in the English Review criticizing the Dangerous Drugs Act of 1920 and wrote a novel, Diary of a Drug Fiend, completed in July. On publication, it received mixed reviews and it was lambasted by the Sunday Express, which called for its burning and used it for influence to prevent further reprints. Subsequently, a young Thelemite, which is what you call somebody who partakes in Thelema, named Raoul Loveday, moved to the Abbey with his wife Betty May. While Loveday was devoted to Crowley, May detested him and life at the commune. Now, this is highly contentious because Crowley later sues for libel on this, but loses. So, she later said that Loveday, her husband, was made to drink the blood of a sacrificed cat, and that they were required to cut themselves with razors every time they used the pronoun I. Loveday drank from a local polluted stream, soon developing a liver infection resulting in his death in 1923. Uh, (laughs) Returning to London, May told her story to the press. John Bull proclaimed Crowley the wickedest man in the world and a man we'd love to hang. And although... Crowley deemed many of their accusations against him to be slanderous. He was unable to afford legal fees to sue them. He's broke at this time. He's very close to broke. And I found it so weird because I watched the Thelemic Church is still very much around. And they made a big point of saying he's not broke. Like he had money the entire time. Which I I don't get why. Even with Blavatsky, there's people who... They're so polarized when they talk about these people. You either love them or hate them. And most of the people who are followers of the church will build them up to be more than life. That is exactly how I felt with these these videos I watched. I mean, it's the same with any religion, I guess, unfortunately. 
then you get people like yeah. that that are put into a position of religious followings and these yeah. people will really uh, build them up. It's the same with anything. In 1928, Crowley publishes what's considered his masterwork, Magic in Theory and Practice. And he also moves back to France because he can no longer afford to keep up the abbot in uh, Sicily. Then he is deported from France in December of 1928 because the authorities, quote unquote, disliked his reputation and feared that he was a German agent. Wow. I, he pretty, I wouldn't put it past him at this point. He continued to have love affairs with both men and women while in the cities. He met with famous people like Aldous Huxley and Alfred Adler. And sorry, this is he went back to New York for a while. So he met Aldous Huxley in New York, who is uh, the author of A Brave New World and The Doors of Perception. And it is widely believed that Alistair Crowley is the one who introduced Aldous Huxley to LSD and other drugs. Okay. Is that significant? Does he like LSD? Well, it, it comes up later. Okay. After befriending both these people in January of 1932, he took the communist Gerald Hamilton as a lodger, through whom he was introduced to many figures within the Berlin far left, and it is possible that he was operating as a spy for the British intelligence at this time, monitoring the communist movement. Right, he likes the Germans. Kind of. It's hard to say whether or not he actually likes the Germans, sympathizes with them, or is acting as a spy. He says he's a spy. Nobody will really agree on the other side. But it's hard to agree on the other side. So "Mm." at this point, he is absolutely (laughs) dirt broke. And he moves back to the UK in 1935 and tries to collect on a bunch of libel lawsuits because all these people have been saying weird things about him for so long. He's like, I'm going to collect on this, which I don't know if everybody listening knows what a libel lawsuit is, but it's basically if somebody hurts your reputation to the public at large based on a lie. They are damaging your value to the populace at large, and you can collect money on it. There is much more to it than simply that, but that is what Aleister Crowley is trying to collect on here. He wins a couple cases, he loses a couple, and at the end of the day, the lawyer bills were more than the collections that he got on any of them, and he has to declare bankruptcy in 1935. Um, At this point... Crowley in 1935, he is about 60 years old. He develops a friendship with Deidre Patricia Doherty, and she offers to bear his child, who was born in May of 1937. How many children does he have now? One, two... He has too many, honestly, because they don't take account because he doesn't care about them. His first living child, he describes as being stupid and thinking she's smarter than she is and beating her one time. That's the living one. That wasn't the one that died. Yeah. First original one. Okay. So he has that one. And this one actually is named Randall Gare. And he lives until he dies in a car accident in 2002. And he was only 65 years old. Interesting. Which in just my mind is crazy. I wonder what kind of life he lived. So Crowley was intrigued by the rise of Nazism in Germany and influenced by his friend Martha Kunzel. Believed that Adolf Hitler might be a convert to Thelema. No. Yeah. But... When the Nazis abolished the German OTO, that cult that we were talking about earlier, and imprisoned Germer, there was a fight. The original creator of OTO died and said Crowley should be in charge of it, but another German person took charge instead. Alistair sued him, didn't win, and just kind of continued on. The guy who took over his name was Germer. He was imprisoned by Hitler 
during the Nazis' reign. Germer fled to the U.S. and Crowley then lambasted Hitler as a black magician. At this point, it's the 1930s. Aleister Crowley is still associating himself with many people within the Britain intelligence community, which includes Dennis Wheatley, Roald Dahl, Ian Fleming, and Maxwell Knight. Hold on, Roald Dahl? Yeah. reads the books? Not just him, Ian Fleming, too. Roald Dahl. Uh, he wrote James and the Giant Peach yeah, and Charlie and, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Chocolate, but we have like a box set of him. He knew Aleister Crowley and was also a spy for British intelligence. Great. <laughs> the one right next to him, Ian Fleming, author of James Bond. It is widely believed that the villain in Casino Royale is based on Aleister Crowley. Did you watch that movie? I can't say that I'm a huge James Bond. No, just I want to know if you watch it or not. I don't think so. Near the end, there's a fairly prolific torture scene, which involves a lot of sexual torture. And it makes a lot of sense. It would make a lot of sense. villain being inspired by Aleister Crowley. Yeah. At this point, so those are all the people he says he's hanging out with. He also claims that he was behind the V for victory sign first used by the BBC. Hmm. This has never been proven. Okay. At this point, he really starts to break down. He dies. What some people say is penniless. Some people don't say is penniless. But at the end of the day, dies at about 72 in a poorhouse relapsing. Oh, you weren't kidding when you said that was dark. Yeah, I skipped a lot of it to get this. Yeah, as I had to do with HPB. Yeah. Uh, that was so, uh, not even a roller coaster. That was just I hate you with straight the down. A couple more things I want to go over. He became very big in the 1960s cultural and sexual revolution. Big inspiration. see why. For... To be honest, I could see why. I was just going to make a comment on, it seems this at a time where this was pretty much legal what he was doing well and outside of there were a few things that are a bit more disdainful than others but a lot of the reason he's called the beast is because he was sexually promiscuous which isn't as bad these days it was not even promiscuous he was bisexual which was probably completely unheard of of that time yeah Yeah. and for him to be that promiscuous and and so open with it yeah, I'm surprised that he lived to that long without yeah. being punished by death. Yeah. So I could see why he became that way later so, on. There are a few things I would like to talk about. So the reason he is still talked about is because he had such an impact on people moving forward and especially on the 60s and 70s. What do you mean so, moving forward? He is a heavy inspiration for the Beatles. They read his work, and he is, in fact, on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Band. You know that one, the album the that people. has all those yeah. random people on it. He is one of those people on the people. cover. That album itself has a whole bunch of stuff behind it that's yep. very controversial. And it has a lot of occult work that would likely involve Aleister Crowley. Where is he? I believe he's in the top left. He is Dylan's in there, too. A West, Girl and Poe. The Doors. Yes. On the cover of their album 13, put the head of Aleister Crowley. And it is widely believed that the song Break On Through to the Other Side is inspired by Edgar Casey being able to transcend the planes and break through to the other side. Edgar and sorry, Casey. I said Edgar Casey. I mean Aleister Crowley being able to break through onto the other side. Okay. <laughs> Not sure where that came from. Don't know where Edgar Casey came from. <laughs> He doesn't come up. He does okay. not come up in this. 
David Bowie's Egyptian phase in the 70s is heavily influenced by whoever we are talking about, Alistair Crowley. I can't remember. I have no idea what's happening right now. I cannot remember (laughs) this guy's name. There was an Egyptian phase he kind of went through. There's also a a, a weird legal battle that I would like to talk about at a different time that happens at this time as well with David Bowie. David Bowie has a lot of interesting things that we could talk about. Next up, the Rolling Stones. It is widely believed that Sympathy for the Devil is actually, in fact, about Aleister Crowley. Ah, interesting. Just in that name alone. There's always something behind even the simplest of things. He is fully credited as being the godfather of the drug revolution of the 1960s and a heavy influence on Charles Manson. I saw a lot of similarities with that. And I just pulled up David Bowie, Aleister Crowley, and they have the same photos side by side. Oh, yeah. He actually copied him a lot in the 70s. It's really weird. Okay. At this point, I do need to circle back. In 1899, Crowley bought what is known as Boleskin House in foyers on the shores of Loch Ness, Scotland. This is before he really got into ritual magic, but he was trying his hand at it. He tried his first rituals here. People say there is some heavy dark magic entombed in this place. He would have parties there that more than likely should have been deemed orgies. There was the intake of all bodily fluids possible Ew! literally all bodily fluids possible i'm just gonna leave it at that but yes if you thought of that as a bodily fluid they ate it it also started what he didn't realize a ritual that's supposed to take six months to complete so that everything finishes and leaves and had to promptly leave before that six months was up so a lot of people consider this house to be completely haunted including jimmy page who bought the house in 1970 okay jimmy page of led zeppelin bought this house in 1970 Went in, said there's too much dark magic here, I can't step foot in here anymore, and promptly gave it to a friend to live in. Can you imagine just going into it, like, the feel of a place like that? I don't know. His friend lived in it for 20 years and raised a family and said it was actually quite a lovely house. I mean, if you're being given a house... He also described poltergeist activity occurring during the entire thing. Like, he would say doors opened all the time and closed, which, to be fair, it's an older house, whatever. Rugs were stacked up and things would just happen. But overall, it was a lovely place to raise a family. Yeah, despite the heavy poltergeist and... Yes. Also, one last heavy influence, just to let you know. You want to take a guess? Kanye. Kanye West. (laughs) You know what? I can do that, actually. So, yeah. This is why this guy is remembered a lot. For the fact well, I want to say just with David Bowie and the Beatles and everything is the influence that they're having just kind of the revolution of the time with the like sexual revolution that's that was taking place. Is that why he kind of became so popular again? That is definitely what I think happened is that the 60s rock but stars kind of showed up. Me, um, Just with David Bowie. And with the Beatles and stuff like that, it can't, I wasn't the one researching it, but that's what would make sense because that was the time there was a huge revolution coming and you mentioned that. So I would say that's why he was probably so popular, but you get into conspiracy theories where you look at that's the popular culture and 
especially with the Beatles, you can get into Sgt. Pepper's. There's a lot more going on. on that oh, album. yeah, for sure. And oh, um, what I find very surprising is if you live in a major city, you actually likely live very close to a Thelemic church. And in fact, Chelsea, you are not too far away from a Thelemic church. The Daughters of Sunset are an OTO-based organization. The esoteric community Daughters of Sunset Lodge. I'm going to say this is... Close to me. Close is it to me? I don't know, but it's in Vancouver. Lima? The Daughters of Sunset Lodge. Going right now. Meetup.com. Lima. Daughters of Sunset. Why isn't it showing me? I see it right here. His religions, cults, whatever you want to call it, are still somewhat practiced today. And the whole idea that he follows with the Lima is that you're trying to find your inner purpose. Which, at the end of the day, he was inspired by theosophy Wow! to come up with this religion. You find your inner self by conducting rituals that include sex magic, which include sodomy, which is kind of a mandatory thing for finding yourself, apparently. I just googled Daughters of Sunset, and literally the first thing, Daughters of Sunset Lodge, Ordo Templi Orientis. Register for your BC vaccine here. <laughs> okay, I told you kind of the baseline of Alistair Crowley. I want to, because we've been going on a long time now, just kind of get into a little bit of the other stuff. The basis for the band Blondie was actually heavily involved with Thelema for a long time, and he got out of it, and he found that it was actually a very disgusting religion. Well, he wrote a book on the entire thing, and he said, Alistair Crowley's desire for blasphemy, murder, rape, revolution, anything good or bad but strong, led him to consider the idea of human ritual sacrifice as the ultimate ritual magical taboo. Lackman tells me he would tease his readers with remarks about human sacrifices in his book, Magic in Theory and Practice. There's no evidence that he actually killed anyone, though he gleefully claimed his spells had driven one lady to suicide and his ideas about human sacrifice inspired later psychopaths like Charles Manson. A couple other quotes. Morally and mentally, women were for me beneath contempt. Intellectually, of course, they did not exist. And another thing that he happened to do, he had an acolyte by the name of Newberg who signed up to be a student and Crowley subjected him to years of sadistic humiliation at his hut in Scotland, including making him cut his arms and sleep naked on a gorse bush for 10 days. Crowley also tortured cats and crucified a frog. He was an enthusiastic big game hunter. Not quite as bad as the rest, but what's that? Is this Gary Lockman? Yeah. He also wrote a book about Blavatsky. Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he also described that he partook in a lot of the rituals of Thelema and in fact ingested what is called, I think it's called a heaven cake, which is a cookie laced with menstrual blood. Ew. Yeah. It's, it's a part of the rites of Thelema. I just, what has to have been your background to be like, yeah, this is, this is, religion for me this is the last thing i want to talk about so he has been described to talk to several demons which he spells differently because of course he does but if you actually look like like daemons d-a-e-m-o-n-s that's basically what anybody like especially if you look at the greeks and the romans they describe all their gods as daemons because it's more so the potential for whatever they're doing is different He was supposed to have met one by the name of Torenzon in uh, 1910. And this is a conversation that happened. So conversations begin when two British 
students asked somebody who was also there by the name of Newberg about a version of a story in which Crowley turned into a zebra and sold him to a zoo. Newberg's response in this book contradicts both the words and attributes uh, in Liber, which is one of the books that Crowley wrote in the statements of Crowley biographer Lawrence Sutton. Ronzon is deemed to be held in check by the power of the goddess Babylon, inhabited by of Bina and the third Hera of the Tree of Life. Both Choranzon and the Abyss are discussed in Crowley's Confessions. The name of the dweller in the Abyss is Choranzon, but he is not really an individual. The Abyss is empty of being. It is filled with all possible forms, each equally inane, each therefore evil, in the only true sense of the word that is. Meaningless but malignant, insofar as it craves to become real. These forms swirl senselessly into haphazard heaps like dust devils, and each such chance aggregation asserts itself to be an individual and shrieks, I am I, though aware all the time that its elements have no true bond, so that the slightest disturbance dissipates the delusion just as a horseman meeting a dust devil brings it in showers of sand to the earth. So I found that really just a good quote and a very interesting quote. And Chornzon in this interaction, which didn't come up a lot in my readings on Alistair, just kind of briefly, but may have, in fact, inhabited his body based on the readings and some people's interpretations of what happened. Ah. And does kind of explain how he gets darker with age because that's 1910 or so. And like, that's right about the time that he. No, that's a very good point that you bring up because he was dealing with some pretty dark stuff. He really was. And Lamb comes up later on. Honestly, I couldn't find a lot about Lamb other than the fact that there's this picture of it. And it's more so just like he gave him some ideas. But Alistair Crowley didn't consider demons different than gods. They were all part of the same group that were just kind of these people who would never give you the straight facts. That's concerning. But I recall listening to something about Aleister Crowley, and it, I'm sure it had to do with demons or how heavily haunted something was to do with him. And well, don't hold me to that because... Baskin, Baskin House is supposed to be incredibly haunted. And in fact, some people say that the Loch Ness Monster didn't really come about till um, Aleister Crowley's rituals happened on the lake. You know what? I feel like that's probably something that I listened on mm-hmm. and how Lamb is still something haunting somewhere it must it had to have been something like that that i was listening to and i don't know what i listened to everything um to do with stuff like this and in fact it's just ridiculous and the reason i think he did so well is because he was a heavily educated individual like he went to cambridge university at a time when most people did not know how to read or write i mean get people like this and you're charismatic enough i mean that's enough money it was at the time yeah Yeah, it was at a time, and I found this with Blavatsky as well. If you were to meet someone like that in this day and age, like she probably wouldn't have gotten very far, but for her time, and she had that amount of money and funding, seemed so worldly, and just had that charisma that she just kind of got cult status, and people just willingly followed her, and I feel like it was just kind of that time in the world where that's just kind of what happened. uh, Just so you know, when... Crowley decided to create Thelema, the religion. He came out with a reading list of books that you should read to gain a full knowledge of Thelema. Hmm. Theosophy's on that list. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. It, the theosophy was very far reaching. Yeah. 
So I am very happy to get that all out of my brain and no longer have to think about Aleister Crowley or the demons that associated with him. If you do want a further episode on the demons or any of the groups that he was attached to. Not I, doing I, demons. Sorry. I'm just going to okay. interrupt that right now. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. If you would like us to do a further dive into any of the groups that he was attached to, whether it be They're Evangelicals, the, the uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn or Thelema or OTO. Please let us know, because right now we do intend to move on from this hellish view of the world and go on to something fun, mostly robots in walking pants. Elsie, anything you want to say before we're done for the night? I was surprised by how dark that was. Not that I didn't know there would be demons and stuff like that, but I didn't know how dark that was. And I think that's about all I have to say on it. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. We will see you in the next episode where we talk less about sex magic. Yeah. That's just how it be. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. Uh, We are a new podcast, and we would very much so appreciate if you could like, subscribe, share and if possible provide a five-star review or some sort of feedback if you feel like there's anything we could be doing better but five-star review is the best thing you can do for us as it does help unfortunately in the world of algorithms yes please and thank you and you can follow us on social media at journey to the fringe we don't have all of them so try searching it instagram we're on facebook right now we have a subreddit And if there's anything you want to hear in the future, feedback, anything, you can email us at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. If there's something we're missing uh, that you'd like to see us on, please let us know. We only know what we know. So we're only in so many places. Also, if you feel that we have gotten anything wrong, please let us know there as well, as we would really like to have the best information possible. We are Mm -hmm. only as good as our research. And if you can provide anything further, it's a real help. Or if you want to share anything, we will definitely, we're open to shares. So yes, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.